Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our Protect Our Province COVID-19 briefing for Wednesday, December 1st, 2021. We are live streaming from the traditional and ancestral territory of many peoples. We are grateful to live and work in Alberta, a province on the traditional territory of 48 different First Nations and the unceded homeland of the Métis Nation. Today's conversation is being shared in ASL. To ensure access to completely accurate information, closed captioning will be uploaded after the live stream is complete. This conversation for the public is being shared live on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. The Protect Our Province COVID-19 briefing is a regular panel of doctors and experts. We will endeavour to bring you timely, accurate updates on the COVID-19 situation in Alberta and take questions from the public and the media. The views of our panellists are their own and do not represent any institutions they may be affiliated with. We have collectively gathered here as concerned Albertans, attempting to ensure that everyone in the province has access to as much information concerning COVID-19 in Alberta as possible. As always, we will start things off with an update on the COVID-19 situation in our province. And with us today for that update is Dr. Vipond. Dr. Vipond, welcome back and congratulations on regaining your Twitter. Yeah, such a weird situation. I'm not going to get into it because they have more important things to deal with today. So um, let's just go right into the slides and just start talking about what we see in, in Alberta. So this is today's um, data. We have uh, cases per day of 435. I haven't had a chance to calculate everything because things uh, were put online a little bit late by the government. So 435 today, last week, 475. That's a little bit less than 10% uh, um, drop week over week. And it's been a drop for the last four or five days. So that's been um, very uh, good because there was a period of time about a uh, a week ago where things were very flat. It was very plateauing, but we've re-found our, our uh, descending curve, which is really great. Next slide, please. And you can see that here where we have that um, really flat um, section. And then it's not hard to tell, but there is definitely a decrease in this last uh, week period. And the seven-day average right now is 320. Um, and that's down from the seven-day average last week at this time with 376. So um, a little bit over, somewhere around 20%. Um, next slide, please. This is the positivity. We've got a 4.07 today and 4.58 last week. Again, you can see how it was really, really flat for a long period of time. Um, even a little bit of an increase about a week ago. And then now um, solidly in the decline, which is, again, reassuring. Next slide, please. And, oh, sorry, guys, these are out of order. Um, let's just see, go to the we'll slide beyond that. We might come back to that one. Yeah, okay, so this is our hospitalizations. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but uh, a very, very, very slow decline going on in our inpatients. And then down two in the ICUs, again, um, uh, dropping, uh, but very slowly, much uh, slower than past curves. Next slide, please. And you can see... Um, and this is the overall wave for hospitalizations and ICUs. Next slide, please. And this is the, uh, the demographics. This is per 100,000 population. So this shows the rate of cases. And, you know, I like to show this every time because it, um, it just reinforces the fact that right now this is a kid's pandemic, right? Those 5 to 11s um, are the ones that are, are suffering the brunt right now. 
And I don't know if everybody's kind of recognized that really we're not going to have full protection of these kids for 10 weeks because they just started on Friday. It takes two doses, eight weeks apart, plus two weeks in order to get that full protection of the, of the double dose. So we're looking at 10 weeks from now, and we still have a situation where the kids are dominating this. There are such simple things we can be doing to protecting them. We can remove all the mask exemptions. Those max exemptions we could remove would be um, the, the fact that K-3 to are exempted around the province. Um, there's some school boards accepting. There's also an exemption if you're sitting at your desk, desk facing forward. You can take off your mask. That's ridiculous for a, an airborne transmitted virus. Um, and there's also exceptions for extracurricular activities and, and sports. Um, so, uh, you know, if we got rid of all of those exemptions, the kids would be so much safer and we wouldn't have this um, domination by them. We can reinforce our test, trace, and isolate system. We can instill, instill serial rapid testing, especially in schools where there's uh, transmission. And I know there is a little bit of that, but we could do so much better. And um, finally, we could um, we could just get as many vaccines and as many arms as possible as soon as possible. So I'm hoping that the government takes some of those things to uh, to heart. Next slide, please. So yeah, let's bring that up. So. This is some of the data that I've been seeing over the, the last couple of days that's got me worried. So this is um, on the left, we have the daily cases for the Omicron. You can see how incredibly steep that rise is. It is crazy. I'm going to bring up the actual data. This is for all of um, this is for Gutang province. Um, and then you can see the weekly shares that have tested are positive. They're already at, at around um, 16%. And then hospital admissions, I don't know. I'm, I, you know, you hear these statements put out by the WHO and others that this is a, a less virulent virus. I don't know what they're basing that on because I'm not seeing it in the numbers. In fact, if you can go back a few slides, Chad, um, you'll see that one slide that was stuck in there. So this is the Gutang Province Hospital uh, Admissions. Um, you can see it just starting to, to curve up, but you can see how rapid that jump is from 103 to 136 week over week. Um, that's a 30% increase. There's nowhere on this curve anywhere that has a 30% jump except for that two-week period. And um, so let's go forward again to the next slide. There we go. Um, so this is looking at the entirety of South Africa, um, all of the provinces, and Guatang is the um, the one where it started. And so I guess there was this maybe hope that it would be restricted to that. But you can see that every single province um, in South Africa is now on the upswing. And one of the, I don't want to like single out South Africa as some kind of like horrible place. I think the thing that we're seeing is South Africa has so much better data than all the other um, sub-Saharan African countries. We have no idea what's going on in other countries. Um, and we're, it's only thanks to the good um, healthcare system in South Africa that we even know any of this data. Next slide, please. And boy, I sure want to get our panelists to take on this. This is a slide that was released on Monday by the South African government for the Tushwa Metro Hospital, which is in Pretoria, which is one of the major hospitals in, in uh, uh, Gauteng province. And it seems to suggest uh, really bad virulence of a, you know, look at the 80 plus where 60 
percent approximately of cases uh, have ended up in hospital and 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 the kids zero to four um huge number so i hope that this is wrong and that that i'm i'm there's something about the data for this that uh, is inaccurate but this is the first slide that i've seen that really looks at the virulence and uh, it's not reassuring so i'm just going to quickly just read off something for the whole country as a whole um, so today, South Africa reported 8,500 cases. That was up 571% from last week, uh, including 40% increased testing. But yesterday, I've got the, uh, uh, today the percent positivity was 16.5%, um, which is way up from last week as well. So just, we can't say that all this, these increased cases are due to increased testing. This is also uh, spread as seen by that increased positivity. So Something's going on. Uh, I don't know. I don't like it. And uh, I guess the last thing I'll say is some of the things I've seen on Twitter. Uh, there's an article in the, the Sydney Morning Herald from Australia that was out today saying that Omicron could be God's gift to humanity and that it's less virulent um, and uh, and more transmissible. Maybe it'll rip through us and we'll all get immunized and all, all will be well. I do have one more slide, Chad, if you could just pull that up. I think it's the last one there. So the problem is, is that, well, there's two problems. First of all, we have no idea of the virulence of this. We don't even know of the increased transmissibility of this virus because we're so early. I want to remind people that we're on day seven of knowing about this, this, this variant. Day seven. And so we don't know a lot. And hospitalizations and deaths are, are lagging indicators. They follow the cases. They don't go along with the cases. So we're still learning about this. We're going to know a lot more in two weeks. But let's just say that we have, um, have to decide whether we want a virus that's the same um, lethality as Delta and uh, or decide between a, a, a Sorry, let me go back this again. We have to decide whether we want a, a variant with the same lethality, but 50% more transmissible, or we want to have a variant that's 50% more deadly, but the same transmissibility. And the answer to what you want is you want to have a more lethal virus. And that's counterintuitive. We always think, well, we want to have, um, you know, uh, at least the, you know, the transmissibility is not the big deal. It's lethality. But because of exponential growth, and you can see that in this graph, if it's more transmissible, even with the same lethality, you're going to have way more deaths from that virus. And all indications say that this is more transmissible, and we do not know the virulence. So I do not want Omicron on my planet, and I'm really quite angry and sad that we have to deal with this. And I think I'll leave it at that. Thank you very much, Dr. Vipond. Um, as we keep diving into this conversation around Omicron variants, transmissibility, um, I would love to bring the rest of our panelists onto the screen so they can introduce themselves. So everybody watching at home and any media present will have the opportunity to formulate some questions based on the expertise of the panel that we have with us. So let's bring everybody up. And if we could just go around the circles-ish squares, the square circles, starting with Dr. Kindertruck. Um, hi, thank you for joining us. Hi. <laughs> uh, thank, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm Dr. Jason Bershak. Uh, I'm a PhD, so not, not a real doctor. Um, listen, I, I'm a moderately adequate virologist that somehow has found himself kind of involved in, uh, 
you know, in outbreak response and, and, and working with really bad viruses for a number of years now. Uh, my research lab primarily works on Ebola. I've been involved in Ebola uh, research, um, outbreak response in the past. Uh, my, my research program centers around Ebola, uh, but we also work on influenza and coronaviruses and, uh, and certainly have spent quite a few years working in high containment labs and beyond, uh, specifically on, on viruses like, uh, like SARS-CoV-2. So, you know, since the emergence of, uh, of this virus, I've been heavily involved uh, from a research standpoint, from a public messaging standpoint. Uh, spent a year in Saskatoon, seconded to be able to provide additional uh, research support for efforts in Canada, and uh, I'm also a member of COVARNET, the Coronavirus Variants Rapid Response Network here in Canada, um, that really is geared to trying to, you know, address, uh, you know, emerging variants and, and how we try and, and these in real time. So it's a pleasure to be here and, and looking forward to provide what context I can. Thank you so very much for joining us. Um, and another first timer with us today is Dr. Kelvin. Dr. Kelvin, if you could introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. I am Allison Kelvin. I'm also a PhD like Jason um, and a good friend of Jason's. <laughs> I'm sure he's happy to get more time with me. Um, I'm also a virologist as well as an immunologist and vaccinologist. I mush those two together and to call it vaccinology because you have to have an understanding of the virus as well as the immune response to formulate a protective vaccine. So uh, previously I've worked on many different emerging viruses with a specialization in emerging respiratory viruses such as SARS-1 as well as many different influenza viruses. So I felt ready to take on this new coronavirus when it first emerged in 2020. Um, so I'm here to, I guess, share my knowledge and I'd be happy to um, take questions. Thank you so very much, Dr. Kelvin. Um, Dr. Gasparovich, as a returning regular contributor to POPAB and a member of our core team, just in case there's anyone joining us for the first time, if you could give a brief overview of yourself as well, that would be great. Hi, everybody. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Gosia Gasparovich. I'm developmental biologist. And I would argue that as PhD, I'm a real doctor. But <laughs> and um, yeah, so I'm developmental biologist since like, I don't want to age myself, but many, many, many years, I observe different uh, dynamic biological processes from kinetics of enzymes binding through how the embryo and placenta is developing or how just cells grow on Petri dishes, how fast they do it or how slow they do it, depending on what we treat them with. So how fast we can kill them and how fast we can make them flourish. Uh, so I started observing the spread of corona of SARS-2 uh, in February 2020. So since February 2020, I'm looking at the dynamics of, of its growth or decline in, in different jurisdictions and making projections too. Thank you. We're going to start our deep dive of conversation off today with a presentation by Dr. Gasparovich. Now, before we go into that, Dr. Kelvin or Dr. Kinderchuk, is there anything that you wanted to offer right off the top um, as Dr. Vipond had solicited your feedback based on his thoughts before we move into that next phase of our dive while it's fresh in your minds? Definitely. Uh, you know, so one of the things that I, I think we need to to kind of keep in mind here is, listen, the situation is very, very fluid, right? So 
Um, right now, the, the data is certainly noisy, and, and I mean that in the context that we don't have a specific measure right now of, of what we're seeing in regards to, uh, to, to virulence and transmissibility. And I, I think Dr. Trevor Bedford um, had a really great thread on this today as he's been trying to go through and calculate uh, you know, what, what we're seeing right now in regards to transmissibility um, with, with Omicron. Um, that there are some very wide confidence intervals on, on the data. Um, we have to appreciate that the case numbers, certainly of Omicron confirmed cases, have have actually not been that exceedingly high. So that, that makes it a little bit more difficult to say specifically what's going on. And, and what I can say from a research standpoint, um, you know, it's going to take us certainly a few weeks to to really address these questions. Uh, we, we are waiting for virus isolates. Uh, we certainly have to all get every uh, moved across the globe and work with collaborators across the globe to uh, to identify what what assays need to be done. Many of us have been on, on calls, you know, 24 seven the last few days uh, about this. So I, I would, you know, again say that um, we need to be very cautious in, in the interpretation of the data. We, we certainly have to appreciate Delta still moving through the community. Um, we have to keep that as a focal point. Uh, Omicron is is concerning but we don't specifically know what we're dealing with yet. But we do know that the measures that, that we're using um, can help uh, reduce transmission. So get vaccinated or you know, additional public health measures or recommendations. We have to follow those along with, with good testing. And I think the next few days are gonna be very loud with a lot of cases being identified. Um, but that also harkens back to how quickly we've been able to identify this new variant and, and been able to get good testing strategies uh, moved across the globe. Dr. Kelvin, did you have any initial thoughts that you wanted to share before we go into Dr. Gasparovich's presentation? I think Jason took all of the good ones. I very much echo everything that Jason said. I think it's really important to recognize that we're quite early in this, um, the discovery of this new variant. And there's several different uh, lines of investigation that need to be taken before we can really come to conclusions about it. I also wanna point out that, um, and Jason mentioned this, the fluidity of, the, of each situation and how dynamic this is. Uh, looking back on the past uh, three waves that South Africa had, this, you know, was a different place in time than where we are right now. So I think we need to take a step back and look at the data. Thank you both very much for your initial thoughts on that. Um, I'm going to turn things over to Dr. Gasparovich and I'm going to pop everybody back into our backstage area. Um, thank you, Dr. Gasparovich, for preparing um, a starting point for today's topic. Um, thank you very much. So, yeah, I would like to show several slides. So, starting, okay. Um, so, here is the slide showing just you know, sort of theoretically what we can, like, what different variants do that are more and less transmissible. So, if now in we have Delta in, in, in Canada, that, that is the dominant variant. And more or less now we are oscillating around RT equal one. So one person infects another one person, basically. So it's it's sometimes it's going a little bit up, some, sometimes a little bit down, but in Canada, very often we are at RT one of Delta. And what is important here that if we would, if we wouldn't allow 
a year ago or one and a half year ago, if you wouldn't decide that it's okay to spread the virus, then then Delta wouldn't, the Alpha wouldn't emerge and Delta wouldn't emerge. If we would stay at original variant or even at Alpha, then already in many places the we would stop the community, we would be able with vaccines that we have and with, with some public health measures to stop the community transmission quite easily. So what gifts for Delta now R equals one would be for Alpha, so B117, it would be RT equal 0.7 and for original strain, it would be R0.5. So I, I still think it's it's really grave mistake what we did that we let it spread because spread is everything. Um, and we're still letting it spread. So it, it's really a pity that a year or a year and a half ago, we didn't decide to maximally, maximally suppress the virus until we have vaccines. Uh, next slide, please. And here, going coming to Omicron. Um, so we, we don't know how much more, how much bigger fitness or how much better it transmits uh, compared to Delta. So again, I make a theoretical thing here. Uh, just if we would have a variant that which growth rate would be 50% more uh, bigger than Delta. And the growth rate could be faster because of uh, vaccine evasion, immune evasion, and because of intrinsic trans higher transmissibility. But anyway, if it would be 50% more transmissible, then we could have situation like on the left side of the graph. So our delta, if our delta RT currently would be 0.9, so slowly going down from 200 cases, and we would have 10 cases already rooted in a populate in a community of new variant that is 50% more transmissible effectively, then its RT value would be 135. So it would be growing exponentially quite fast. But so basically, if if the Omicron would be 50% more transmissible effectively, then to stop something like this from spreading to like nip it in like prevented from establishing, we would need to bring delta RT RT of delta to 0.6. Then the new variant would have RT of 0.9 under such conditions. And starting from 10 cases, it would slowly, it would be slowly decaying. Next slide, please. And here, sorry, it's 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 a very busy graph, but I, I just wanted to come back to the past when we first had a first new variant uh, of concern that, that is alpha B117, also called B117 or UK variant. And what happened in Alberta in, in winter last year? So there's line, linear scale on the top graph and logarithmic scale on the bottom graph. So we had we let it really spread for very, very, very long time before we acted. And to come back, already we had the first case on December 15th last year. And it's it's important to know that not all imported cases will start start the spread. And that's what happened. Like so we still have chance to be not in the worst case scenario with those few first cases, but eventually some of the cases would sort of take roots and spread in the community. And that happened, we already seen on January 25th that Alpha was spreading in community. Uh, so it was spreading at least for one or two weeks before. And already in February, March and April, we had 
clear exponential growth, which you can see on the bottom bottom graph, which it, which is logarithmic scale. And that's the scale we should always use evaluating the spread of this virus because it grows exponentially or declines exponentially. So something that look very, looks very flat on the bot on the top graph, on the bottom we can see that actually it was exponential growth and it was totally ignored and uh, we didn't took appropriate measures before it would really burst into, into this huge wave. So I hope that we won't repeat the same mistake with the Omicron and we will try to really quench it at the very, very early moment, like what we would do with, with cancer, for example, right? Um, so next slide, please. And here, coming again to the, to the spread, because in the same way that variants don't come by themselves, they come because we let it let, let the variant let, let virus spread, replicate many times, and try the best way try to be better. So it tries to be better and becomes nasty variants became like evolves into nasty variants. Also by letting virus spread, we generate waves. And here's the difference between approach of Atlantic Canada with elimination strategy and the rest of the Canada with mitigation strategy. So here in Alberta, we had uh, already four large waves. At the same time, Atlantic Canada decided to stop community transmission and then fight the outbreaks if they appear, uh, had much better outcomes in time in terms of cases. So they had some outbreaks um, during our second and third wave. But what is interesting that because of the travel control, so the mandatory quarantine between provinces, those outbreaks didn't spill to neighboring provinces. So if the outbreak was in uh, Nova Scotia, it didn't sp spread to Prince Edward, Prince Edward Island or, or New, Brans New Brunswick. Uh, what is also interesting in this is that sometime in summer, New Brunswick decided to live with COVID, so adopted mitigation strategy and dropped the elimination strategy. And we can clearly see it on the graph that their cases are going up much, much faster and much to much higher levels than uh, than in the rest of the Atlantic Canada. Uh, next slide, please. And that translates. So here this graph shows um, new new deaths per 100,000 uh, 100, people. So it's adjusted for population, like the previous graph was adjusted for population too. Uh, and we see that there was much, much more deaths in provinces that led the COVID spread than in the provinces that uh, that wanted to stop and actually stop the community transmission. And now we can also see that in New Brunswick, the death rate is very similar as in other provinces, like in the non-elimination provinces. Next slide, please. Uh, so basically policy is up to the government. Like we cannot, like it, it's a, the government can do policy that will prevent fifth wave or will cause the fifth wave. So here we don't have much much power, but we can make our we can protect ourselves and we can protect our loved ones and we can make our holidays safer. So there are simple things that we can do. There are airborne precautions, vaccinations and rapid tests. So for we know that COVID is airborne. 
So we can ventilate, we can use CO2 monitor to assess ventilation quality in real time. So if the reading is more than 1000 parts per million, it's not good, we should open the window. Uh, we can filtrate air using port portable HEPA air purifiers and use as good masks as we can. So we should use um, respirators, KN95 and higher. There's a lot of those produced in Canada. Some are, some are cheaper than $2 per or $1.70 uh, per respirator. So they're not super, super cheap, but, but for most people, they are probably affordable. Uh, and we should use them every, every time we, we are in the enclosed spaces with other people or in enclosed spaces where there were other there, there were other people. So they could so in places where there can be aerosols that carry the virus. Uh, also, we should vaccinate as, as soon as possible. We can go get we are eligible for the third dose. We should get them and vaccinate kids and use rapid tests. That's an amazing thing. Like before family gatherings, we should really if we can get those rapid tests and, and test family members uh, to prevent asymptomatic spread, to catch if anybody is infected, then we can, that we can detect. Not 100%, but, uh, but that they can, those tests can help us detect somebody who is asymptomatic. Mm. So yeah, thank you very much. Like, let's make our holidays safe. Thank you very much, Dr. Gasparovitz. I keep saying that the holidays are in the air and so is COVID-19. Um, so this week and next week, we are going to do a brief overview of those things again. Um, that way folks at home can try to have the safest holiday season possible. So hopefully Alberta doesn't need to feel the fifth wave. I'm going to bring back up all of our panelists. That way we can continue this dive into the virus variants, what we do know, what we don't know. I'm going to turn things over to Dr. Vipond. That way we can continue the conversation that we began at the beginning um, around what is happening in Sub-Sahara Africa, what we do know, what we don't know. Oh, there we go. Oh, Dr. Vipond, you are muted. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify my thoughts because I think both uh, Dr. Kelvin and Dr. Kinderchuk were rightly pointing out that we don't know a lot about this virus. And, and I want to echo that. Um, but I also want to... Um, because I've had family members actually come up to me with this, this thing called hopium. Hey, maybe this is the best thing that's ever happened to us. And I just want to say, whoa, like, let's slow down. Like, maybe we can have that conversation in two weeks when we know a lot more about this virus. But what we do know still remains concerning. Let's find out what's actually going on. And in the meantime, let's apply the precautionary principle. And I think we have, as a society, consistently failed in applying the the precautionary principle, whether it's been on mitigation strategies or airborne precautions. Um, uh, so, you know, uh, just a call out for the precautionary principle. I think it's great that we've started to have some travel restrictions. I, I personally would love to have more of a, um, as Dr. Uh, Gasparovic uh, pointed out, a more of a quarantine on arrival style for all travelers um, here, because it's, it's going to be coming in from all directions, not just from sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and I think there is a, a little bit of maybe latent racism going on and just focusing on those countries rather than on other countries around the world. And um, I just wanted to say one other thing, and I think uh, Dr. Gasparovic also pointed this out, the principles of physics still apply to this variant, no matter what. Um, 
It can't infect you if it can't get in you. And that means everything that we've been doing before will still work. And that's gathering restrictions and uh, making sure that asymptomatic people aren't be exposing themselves to others by doing rapid testing. And of course, really, really good masking. So um, maybe I'll just throw it back at uh, the, the three doctors to see if there's any other thoughts on that. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I think certainly, you know, bring, bring up great points. I, I, I don't think we can move to this idea that, um, listen, it, it, if it has a, a lower virulence, um, that that may actually be beneficial because then we can get everybody infected and, and move on. Um, we have to appreciate that certainly, you know, we, we can't look at this as being basically binary where either it's virulent or it's not virulent. There's a gradient with all this, right? So when we think about this idea that, um, you know, is it, you know, is it more transmissible or, or less transmissible than Delta? Um, you know, we have to think about the fact that there are different variables at play. So you can have something that maybe is more transmissible, but a little bit less virulent and still end up with a lot of people in hospital. And we have to appreciate this is not a uniquely Canadian epidemic or a North American epidemic. Um, there are many areas of the world and, and many areas where, where Dr. Kelvin and, and myself are extremely familiar with from, from our work in the past and our travels in the past um, that do not have either you know, vaccine equity or healthcare uh, infrastructure and sustainability to, to deal with, uh, you know, with even a, a lesser or mild disease. Um, it's going to result in a lot of cases. So I think for us, we, we have to look at this aspect that we have good tools right now to be able to try and, and mitigate severe disease, and that's in the vaccines that have been produced. Um, we don't know how fully uh, that the current vaccines will, will provide uh, protection against severe disease uh, against Omicron, but what I would also caution with this is that I think, again, the, the vaccines so far have stood up the test of, of time against the variants that have emerged. So it, it would be surprising to see Omicron emerge and completely subvert uh, the vaccines. That, that, that is not going to happen. There, there may be some drop, but we, we have to appreciate as well that there are other mitigation measures as well that, that we could use. Um, so certainly want to hear what Dr. Calvin has to say as well. Yeah, Jason, again, I um, echo your comments. I was really thinking about no new virus is no is no good no matter what. Um, there is no spectrum of more pathogenic, less pathogenic, mild, severe. You know, we look at influenza viruses. Influenza kills about 3,000 people per year in a typical season in Canada. So there's a spectrum of vulnerability, vulnerable populations that I think we all need to be aware of. And so a new variant is not going to be good no matter what the pathogenicity it, it has. But um, at the same time, we want to be taking in all the information we can to assess it and assess the transmissibility, assess how it may evade pre-existing immunity, either by infection or vaccination, and how severe and what the clinical picture is of this new variant. Dr. Kelvin, can I, um, can we, so we, we're so lucky to have you on. I think you're our first vaccinologist that's on. Um, quite a debate in Canada over third doses. And um, I'm, I'm I'm intentionally calling it a third dose and not a booster. I think there's more evidence that this is a three-dose vaccine and not um, not a two-dose vaccine where you get a bit of extra on the third dose. But I'm just wondering, um, 
Omicron, irrespective of Omicron, where do you think we should be going for the rest of the population on third doses with this debate going on? Uh, yeah, I think um, so. Again, I'm not uh, creating um, public health guidelines as well as how the vaccines should be administered. And I'm not a medical doctor, but my knowledge of vaccines is quite extensive. I what I am hesitant to um, give widespread third shots or boosters, knowing that there isn't clear evidence that in a healthy adult, there is decreased immune protection um, as well as de or decreased um, immune memory. So at this time, I would be cautious. Now, looking at a new variant, you know, that brings up a lot of new questions. Um, aside from that, I'm still very concerned, though, about people who would be over 65. Um, as well as people in vulnerable populations, they for sure um, should be getting the next, the third booster or the third shot. There's a lot of evidence to support that that's beneficial in those um, populations. As our conversation today is focusing a lot around Omicron, or Omicron, I did not take ancient Greek. Um, what... If we could roll back a little bit, just for folks at home, could someone give me a lay human explanation of virus evolution as it relates to SARS-CoV-2? Um, my understanding is, is that the more transmission we allow, the more likely it is that the virus will have an opportunity to create new variants, some of which become variants of interest, some of which become variants of concern, some of which we don't worry ourselves about. What does that pattern of evolution look like in terms of do we even know, is there a base denominator of a thousand infections might equal one genetic chain? I have no idea, and I would love to. I can take a quick stab at this. I don't know if, uh, if Allison wants to, to, to certainly add her thoughts. So when we think about this idea of, of viral evolution, we certainly have to appreciate this is a very random process, right? So uh, as somebody who kind of cut their eye teeth on bacteria and then moved into viruses, you know, we're, we often think about things like antimicrobial resistance and antibiotic resistance, and somewhat equate that to maybe what we see in, in regards to evolution uh, of viruses and selective pressure. It's very different, right? We've considered the fact that bacteria have uh, an active metabolism, they respond uh, in, in basically instantaneously to their environments in the same way that or very similar ways that, that our own cells do. Viruses, it, we see that there are random mutations that will be generated because, in, in essence, um, the replication machinery of the viruses are sloppy, right? So the Microsoft Word document that gets generated and keeps producing copies uh, upon itself, that spell check is not necessarily very good. Sometimes it's completely absent in coronaviruses. It's there, but it's not you know, overly perfect or overly good even. So as those mutations start to generate, now we start to look at, at the aspects that, that go into changes within the virus. So can the virus uh, be transmitted more readily? Is it able to bind to cells uh, with a higher affinity? Um, is it able to counteract uh, you know, early immune responses? Is, is it able to replicate to a higher efficiency? And none of these things alone may actually be predictive of whether or not that new variant is going to be able to be sustained in the population. 
So if you think about this idea of evolution, it's very random. Um, it's occurring all the time. Variants are, are being generated uh, th throughout the course of infection because mutations uh, occur uh, you know, very frequently, but often these mutations are silent. Um, and that's the important point that we have to kind of appreciate is that variants are always present. So we think about this idea of variants of concern. Variants of concern represent a tiny fraction of the variants that are being generated. Um, the unfortunate reality is that these have you know the additional advantages to be able to to proliferate quite you know quite a bit better um, than maybe what uh, what other variants in the population are and they can get sustained transmission and so uh, you know all of that what am i trying to say it's a random process this is part of what viruses do the more that we let viruses transmit the more we open that opportunity for viruses to continue change um, and, and certainly to open up the opportunity for uh, additional advantages in, in fitness of viruses to, uh, to start to take over in the population. Can I just follow up that, that thought, um, Dr. Kinderchuk, and it's for either of you virologists. Um, can this evolutionary process go infinitely? Like, it seems like the most transmissible item we have in the world is measles, which may have an are not of somewhere between 12 and 20. And we're getting pretty close to that. Is there a theoretical upper limit? And, and kind of along with that, does the fact that there's asymptomatic transmission change the evolutionary pressures over something like SARS-CoV-1, where um, because it was easily identifiable as, as only being in symptomatic people, it was easily to, to get under control? Um, so kind of a two-part question. Allison, I'll let you jump in if, you, uh, if you'd like. Uh, well, I guess that goes back to how I think of the dynamics. Um, every, I don't think that you can think of our nod as being static. It's dynamic in, you know, your social situation um, as well as your biological situation. So I think, you know, it's, a, it's an important thing to think about, but also know that the situation with the measles virus isn't the same as what we're looking at with SARS-CoV-2. Um, in respect to evolution, I think Jason had some good points on what I consider to be barriers. You know, there's certain barriers that a virus has to go through that's really going to um, weed out certain viral populations and that becomes the selective pressure. So one, the virus has to get into the cell. So somehow it has to have that right makeup to actually get in. And once it's inside, then during its vir viral replication cycle, it's gonna make mistakes as Jason had uh, mentioned. Um, and then after those mistakes have been made, um, the mistakes have to be carried over into quality new virus particles. And typically we think of the virus particles coming out of an infective cell to actually be more of a population than a, than a continuous um, almost copy of itself. So as it's leaving a cell, it needs to, it goes through another barrier um, and that's finding a new cell to infect and replicate again. And then we can think of the barriers that are throughout, in this case, the respiratory tract. So we have a barrier of where it's going to replicate in our bodies. Is it going to be in the upper respiratory tract in our nose or in the lower respiratory tract in our lungs? And this is going to really start selecting what type of 
um, virus is going to be easily sneezed out or coughed out, and then also the clinical possibly the clinical symptoms that are going to be associated with that virus. And then the whole process starts all over again once this um, population of viruses go and find a new host. And is that new host able to be infected again in the upper respiratory tract or the lower? That's another barrier. So I think that, you know, there's a lot of dynamic pieces even in that situation. Um, and, but a lot of randomness in what the virus is actually doing and what um, mutations are taking hold within the virus. Any thoughts from you on that, Jason? Uh, sorry, Dr. Kindrachuk. No, no, please just go with Jason. <laughs> um, no, I, yeah, I guess it's because it seems like there's different evolutionary pressures here than on your average virus. For some reason, we don't have variants of measles that are outcompeting vaccines. We don't have variants of measles that are getting more and more transmissible. Is there something unique about this virus that's allowing this to happen? And if so, what's the upper limit? I don't know if there's anything that's specifically unique. Um, you know, certainly uh, we're, we're seeing broad spread globally right now, which which I think is one of the biggest aspects of this, right? So certainly we go back and say, okay, if you were to look at measles, um, say in the early 1900s, is there were there signs of a lot of variants that, that were being identified as measles was moving through the population because of the breadth of the number of people that, that were being infected, but we don't necessarily have that data, or at least that I know of. Um, I think right now what we're seeing with SARS-CoV-2 is, listen, we're, we're looking at obviously billions upon billions of infections um, and, and that continue to, to move through populations and, and certainly move through uh, different barriers. Um, and the virus is, is really still stretching its legs, right? So there will be an upper limit. We have to think about the fact that there are fitness costs that come with, uh, with some of these mutations as well. Um, so, you know, we, we have to appreciate that, uh, yeah, there can be a lot of, uh, you know, I think fluidity in, in how the virus is mutating, um, but there are also going to be costs that come with maybe over, you know, over beneficial uh, activities or function in, in particular mutations. And I think one of the things we are looking at right now, certainly with, with Omicron, so this question about all the mutations we're finding in spike. So, you know, we're looking at 30, you know, 30 mutations within the spike protein. Now we can look at these individual mutations and we can say there, you know, this particular activity is associated with these mutations or this constellation. We've seen this with other variants, but the thing we don't necessarily know is how all of these work in concert with one another. And I think, again, this goes back to this idea that we really have to take a step back and say, we don't know definitively what the behavior of, of Omicron is. We are going to figure it out, certainly in the next few weeks as, as we start to look at this as a global research community. Um, but we can get some, some sense of that from the mutational profiles and the sequencing data, but we have to be able to look at, at the actual epidemiology data and certainly the biological data to say, is do all of these activities or all these mutations lead to additive effects or do we start to see that they there are maybe cancellation effects uh that are taking place and and, and i think simply we we don't really know at this point yeah i think jason also it's an important point that this is a new virus to humans um, I think right now we don't have a good sense of how fast it is mutating. It yeah. could just be adapting to people 
And that's what we're seeing these um, these huge jumps in, or in say mutations that are being conserved and allowing the virus to infect and continue transmitting. Uh, they, actually, the, the only the only other call that I stand on in this is, you know, we, we have to consider as well with SARS-CoV-2, which is one of the, the unfortunate realities from a One Health standpoint is this is not a virus that is solely unique to humans either. Um, and that's another aspect that that we have to appreciate is that, listen, as as it's mutating and as it's changing, we're also starting to get a sense of of where this virus has spilled over in animal populations. Certainly today we heard the announcement about the, you know, the first, uh, you know, positive samples or positive identification in deer in Canada, which we already knew was happening in the US. And certainly there are other animal species that, that we know are being infected. Um, so, you know, there, there are going to be different drivers uh, within these different populations. And, and I think we are really learning right now what this looks like and, and certainly what, um, you know, what SARS-CoV-2 looks like from a health perspective in regards to, uh, to spillovers from, from different uh, animal species. So I have a question to, to Dr. Kelvin. Uh, so do you know how the work on sterilizing vaccines looks like now? Is there anything on preparation? Because last last year I thought that by this time in this year we would already have have such a vaccine and it would be such a game changer, right? It would stop could stop. We don't we don't have a sterilizing vaccine for influenza. I'm gonna pop yet. in for one so, second and ask what a sterilizing vaccine is for all of the humans like me at home who are just like shoot me up with whatever you've got um that's gonna make me safe. I don't know the difference. Yeah, it's a good, it's a great question, actually. Um, typically, we think of a sterilizing vaccine being a vaccine that induces antibodies that are able to completely neutralize the virus and blocking it, block it from being able to infect new cells. So actually produce a productive infection in its host. Um, we don't have that for influenza viruses. We didn't have it for coronaviruses before. Um, the biggest problem with respiratory viruses is that there's a huge difference in our immune system um, between our lower respiratory tract and our upper respiratory tract, and then also how we are vaccinated. When we're vaccinated um, for flu and now uh, COVID-19, we're vaccinated intramuscularly in our arm, and that really produces a good systemic um, immune response, which is going to protect our lower respiratory tract more efficiently than our upper respiratory tract, which is more um, governed by our mucosal immune system. So I think that to get a something closer to a sterilizing vaccine, we would need a vaccine platform that actually sterilized our site of infection, which would be in our upper respiratory tract. So something closer to what we see with flu mist or the influenza nasal spray vaccine. Thank you. So, because like a year ago, I, I, I read that there were works done on like nasal vaccines and, and I don't know if it fizzled out yeah. or... So far, none of them have been approved. And I'm not sure about the data for effectiveness and how they've um, done in phase three clinical trials. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. 
So as we watch this variant of concern, um, and obviously more and more cases are being identified every minute now that folks are watching for it, before we say goodbye, could we, could both of you, Dr. Kinderchuk, as well as Dr. Kelvin, um, as well as Dr. Vipont and Dr. Gasparovich, if you want to weigh in, share just briefly what we do know about Omicron and what we don't know about Omicron. Elsa, do you want to take this first or would you rather take it first? You can go first. <laughs> I kind of thought that would be the thought. Listen, what, what, what do we know and what, what do we not know? Um, there, there's a large chasm right now in, in regards to our knowledge on Omicron, right? And, and I think you've, you've seen that play out on social media and, and in the news uh, over the last five days. And certainly with, uh, with, with people that have been doing COVID research for the better part of two years now, um, you've heard us you know, be very, very vocal saying, listen, we, we need to be very centrist right now because we don't understand a lot about this variant of concern. What, what do we understand? It's it's emerged. Obviously, we don't specifically know where it emerged from. Thankfully, to our South African colleagues, again, we owe them a debt of gratitude, but they identified this very quickly. Um, we've been able to get surveillance uh, broadened out across the globe. We're identifying cases very quickly, but it also has put us a little bit behind the eight ball, right? Because we, we've identified it before we've been able to actually start to understand what this variant of concern is. Um, I, I think the best way for us to view this is some Delta is still putting a lot of people in hospital, still putting, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, a, a lot of people into ICUs um, and, and unfortunately resulting in a lot of fatalities. We need to continue to deal with, with Delta. We need to be concerned about Omicron. We need to figure out what it's doing. We'll, we'll get a, a sense very quickly, um, but we have to appreciate that the things that we've been able to do in regards to mitigation measures um, are likely still going to to be effective uh, against Omicron. So I, I think we have to wait for the, the data to come in over the next few weeks. But we need to, uh, you know, to, to really try and figure out where it's moving in our communities. And, and certainly in areas where we're seeing a high incidence of, of Omicron, we need to figure out how we can provide them, uh, you know, with, with additional resources uh, or support to be able to get things under control. Understanding that increased transmission in, in other communities globally is going to have uh, not only a health effect on us, but an economic effect uh, moving forward as well. I think it's fascinating that we're doing this bass backwards. Like for every other virus in the world, we've understood how it de deals with human populations. And then we've gone as we've, you know, improved our science and, and figured out the, the molecular biology and the, the genetics and the, 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 the DNA. This time we're going at it backwards, right? We, we understand the, the shape of the protein and the actual sequence of the, the, uh, the, 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 the genetic material. Um, and we can even play in the lab with antibodies and see how it interacts with the, with the spike protein, but we don't know what it means for populations, right? We don't know what it, if you put it in a, a room of a thousand people, how many people are going to walk out with an infection? How many people are going to wind up dead? How many people are going to wind up in the hospital? Um, and what are the means we have to, to, to manage those? So um, I think it's really, really important to reiterate, there is so much we don't know. Um, we don't know the, the viral virulence. We don't know the, uh, how, uh, how it interacts with our, our, our immune antibodies, our, 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 our 
body without any um, vaccines in it. And, and we don't know um, how transmissible it is from, from person to person. So what do we do know? We know, you know as Dr. Kindrachuk said, we know the, the mitigation measures will almost certainly work. If it can't get in you, it can infect you. Um, and uh, everything else is left to be seen. Before we close, what I know is going to be an ongoing topic of conversation over the coming weeks. I would love to um, close off this section with both Dr. Gasparovich and Dr. Calvin. What are you two going to be watching for over the next few weeks? So we've talked a little bit about what we do know and what we don't know about the new variant, but what are some of those positive and negative signs that from your guys' expertise, you're going to be keeping your eyes on as more information becomes available? So I will be definitely watching the number of cases and and the rate of spread and how fast or slow it grows. Yeah, so I guess I just want to address one thing about what we do know um, before I get into what I'll be watching. And that's that the vaccines that have been developed for COVID-19 um, the platforms that have been used induce both of our immune systems arms. So our antibodies or our humoral immune system, but also our T cell immunity. And our T cell immunity is really, really important because it actually induces a more cross-reactive or cross-protective response. So I think we're really lucky in that regard. And also to identify that we're in a very different situation than we were in in January 2020, where we have some pre-existing immunity in the populations. People have vaccines and they also, um, some people have been infected already. What I'm looking for right now is a number one um, experiment that I wanna do is actually in the lab. I would love to have some Omicron uh, virus and uh, do virus neutralization assays and see if the antibodies that were elicited from vaccination or previous infections can block viral entry. So I think that's going to give us a huge um, insight into how how severe this disease is going to be in people who are already infected or vaccinated. And as I mentioned, though, we also have the T cell immune arms. So I would also be interested in stimulating T cells from vaccinated people with peptides or pieces of the virus and see if we have cross-protective immunity. Uh, looking on a population scale, I'm really looking for um, what type of breakthrough infections are happening and what type of reinfections are happening. So if you were vaccinated with AstraZeneca, are you more likely to be infected with Omicron compared to people who might have been vaccinated with Moderna, who, which we know has um, a slightly higher uh, effectiveness compared to Pfizer and quite large compared to um, AstraZeneca? for our regular variants. So I'll be looking for that and parsing out um, specifically where the cases are. And uh, yeah, I think some other important points that were mentioned too, what is our caseload and where is it located throughout the world? 
Thank you all so very much for your time today. As always, this topic is way too large to discuss in an hour and take all of the questions that we were receiving via the social medias. Um, your insight has been exceptionally valuable and I am looking forward to continuing to access that insight via your guys' online profiles um, as we learn more and more about this new variant of concern and continue to try to keep the variants of concern that we already have circulating freely in our communities under control. Um, before we say goodbye today, we are going to bring on our final panelist. Um, I have a very special guest that I have been looking forward to all day to talk to. This is my friend that I am just meeting in the digital space for the first time, Eleanor. Hi, Eleanor. I'm Michelle. Hi. Hi. Could you introduce yourself for the folks who are watching? So my name's Eleanor, and I'm just here to talk a little bit about kids' COVID shots. I really appreciate that. You see, I've been looking for an expert on kids' COVID vaccines, an expert who had a kids' COVID vaccine and could maybe talk to some of the tiny humans who haven't had one yet about what it was like. Could you tell me a little bit about what happened when you got your vaccine? Well, so, yeah, it was really short, and, yeah, I barely felt anything and it was about like one and a half seconds. It was super short. What was the place like where you went for it? It was busy, but there's like barely a line though. Oh, that's handy. So it seemed like there were lots of other not so tiny, tiny humans getting their vaccines too? Yeah. Yeah? Um, was it a pretty big place? Yeah, it was pretty big. So there wasn't too much of a line, but there was a line. Yeah. Yeah. And so then after you got in the line, what happened? Just so people know what to expect. Um, well, there was like, you had to like sign some things to, so that, and you had to do your signature and like, you just fill out some papers and yeah. So you filled out the papers and then did they take you to another spot to give you your vaccine? Yeah. Kind of like a little room without a door. Okay. And did they put it in your tongue? No, they put it. Oh, okay. Where did they put it, Eleanor? Kind of like on your shoulder. Okay. Were you wearing short sleeve or long sleeve? Um, short sleeve. Did that make it easier? Yeah. Yeah. And you said it was like a second and a half? Yeah. Oh, that's pretty fast. Yeah. And then what happened after it was done? Um, well, it, so, and it, Sometimes it feels sore if you don't move your arm around for a while. So it's really good to move your arm once you get your COVID vaccine. That makes sense. Do you have any other tips for other tiny humans who are going this week? Well, some things that you could do is you could bring headphones um, to listen to some music or watch a movie. Or, like, hold a grown-up's hand and think happy thoughts. That is exceptionally smart. 
And you'd already mentioned that you were wearing short sleeve, which seemed like yeah. it made it easier. Yeah. So headphones or some sort of movie, you mentioned moving your arm a lot so that you didn't yeah. get stiff. Did you do anything else when you got home to help make you feel comfortable and safe? Well, not really. I've heard that some people like putting ice on their arms afterwards. Any thoughts on that? Did you need it? No? Yes? No, not really. No. I think that you must be much mm, stronger than I am because I know that I needed some ice afterwards. This is really quite impressive. And so when do you go for your second one? Um, when I'm not sure yet. That's fair. That's fair. Did you have any... Um, side effects afterwards? Like you didn't need ice. You kept moving your arm. I know some people say that sometimes they might feel a little bit sick after. Anything like that? No. This is really, really exciting to hear. So if you had sort of a final thought to give anybody else who's in that 5 to 11 sort of age range about getting their first dose of the COVID vaccine, what would you really want them to know? Well, it's like, just really try not to panic because just really short. Excellent. I love it. Don't worry about it. It is really short, over and done with before you know it. And how do you feel? Do you feel safer, like in going to school? How, how do you feel? Well, I feel like now I only have one more to do instead of two more COVID shots to do. That is excellent advice. As soon as you get one done, hopefully you've only got one more to go, um, but you're partway through. Yeah. Oh, this is great. Great. Anything else that you would like to share with everybody before we say goodbye for today? Um, no, not really. Well, thank you so very much, Eleanor, for agreeing to come on and talk to me a little bit about what it was like for you to get your vaccination. And congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks to you, too. Oh, <laughs> thank you again for thanking me. Lovely. It's just great. Um, should you say hi, mom, and like wave out into the into the universe? Thank you very much, Eleanor. Um, so thanks again, everyone, for tuning in. We're going to continue with our every second week format, and we're going to take that little bit of a hiatus towards the, end of the towards the end of December. But as always, if something needs to be highlighted, we will make sure to do it in a timely fashion. So please make sure you are subscribing in whatever format you are usually joining us to be notified in case Pop Alberta needs to pop up prior to our next scheduled briefing, which currently is slated to be Wednesday, December 14th, 2021. Once again, thank you so much to all of our panelists who joined us today, our extra special guest, Eleanor, as well as everyone watching in whatever fashion you tune in. Until next time, stay safe, Alberta. And as always, remember, COVID-19 is airborne. Wear the best mask you have access to, and vaccines really do save lives. Thank you so much, and we will see you again in a couple weeks.